So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the precious and wonderful name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm very happy to be with you. We have all kinds of subliminal messages embedded. Do we have any Muzak going? I heard Muzak a while ago. Are all the sound systems off? You know, I think I'll, I'll lead by example and make sure that my handheld device is off because it wasn't. We have so many messages, cultural messages, which are embedded, and they're indelible. We can't get rid of them. If I say to you, I want you to answer me, I want you to echo me, okay? As soon as I stop, I want you to finish the sentence. Like a good neighbor, you know, Sean Wilkins paid me to do that. Okay. <laughs> Okay, finish the sentence. In the beginning, now what I fear is that the first kind of message eclipses and, uh, is, eclipses and forces out the second message. Let me say that like a good neighbor, like a good doctor, God's word is here. What does a good doctor do? A good doctor has to do at least three things. A good doctor has to know where the healthy norm is. He has to know what the right numbers are in so many variants, in so many physical symptoms. The second thing he has to know is he has to know where you're, you and I are off from the norm. Third thing he has to know is how to get us back toward the healthy parameters. Now, that's what a good doctor does. That's what, the, that's what the Word of God does. It's only in the Word of God that we can find the norm, the healthy norm. Not the average, but the healthy and original and intended norm. And it's only in the Word of God where we can discover how far we're off from the norm. And it's a part of our fallenness that we deny the norm and that we deny that we're off. And only the Word of God can get us back where, back to the place that we need to be. Now, in the beginning was the word, and then there was the lie. Anytime the message of God's word is proclaimed, there are always four reactions. There's doubt, there's distortion, there's denial, and there's the presentation of a contradictory narrative. We see that in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that you couldn't eat from the fruit of any of these trees? Doubt. Did God really? That's, that's doubt. That you couldn't eat from any tree? That's distortion. God didn't say that. You shall not die. That's denial. 
The fact is, God doesn't want you to become like himself. That's the alternate contradictory narrative, which is not only a lie, it's the opposite truth of the truth, because God's whole goal is to make us like himself by making us like his son, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly like himself. Now, I think two times ago when I spoke in this room to this group, not the last time, I think the last time we spoke, we talked about John 3 in the interview with Nicodemus. I think two times ago, I made a presentation which could be called Christian Apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. And what I emphasized was that had the gospel been made up, it would have been made up a different way. I just touched on the fact that the gospel could not have been made up. Today we're going to spend, tonight we're going to spend all the time we have left. I'm going to push this thesis that the gospel is unimaginable. The, the gospel could not have been imagined in a human brain. Now, let me, let me tell you why this is hard. It's hard because, especially those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, we've been so exposed to the gospel, it's very familiar to us. It doesn't shock us. Those people who originally heard the gospel were shocked out of their minds because it was so... It was not just improbable, it was an impossible reality to imagine in the first century among the Semitic peoples of Palestine. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I'll just give you a brief resume of what we talked about, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, when I said that if the gospel were made up, it would have been made up in a different way. And people at First Savannah know this story better than I do, but um, the example I always give is this. I'm going to tell you two stories. One is true, one is false. Now, when I tell these stories to a foreign audience, they don't know which one is true or false. I'm pretty sure you'll know, okay? First story. I was on the football team at the University of Georgia. I became an All-American. Don't laugh yet. I played professional football and I became most valuable player in the Super Bowl. That's one narrative. Here's the second narrative. I walked on the freshman team at the University of Georgia in 1968. I was given a freshman letter through some clerical mix-up. Either that or they were shocked that I didn't actually expire on the playing field or the practice field. Uh, I never played, always practiced. I had two teammates. One is dead, one has had a stroke. They never knew my name before they died or had a stroke. One was named Bill Stanfield, one was named Jake Scott. They were both All-Americans, they were both, both All-Pros, and after the Dolphins' undefeated 72 season, Jake Scott was the most valuable player in the Super Bowl. Now, you know which story's made up, don't you? By the way, I almost touched Jake Scott on a punt return once. It was, it was sort of like those Roadrunner cartoons with self in the role of Wild E. Coyote. And I got about that close to him, and he was gone. And I had my only theological thought of that year. I wasn't a Christian yet. I just 
breathed a little prayer as I turned around and pretended to chase him. Um, I said, dear God, you sure did make him different than you made me. I think I said that out loud, honestly. I, I can remember that so vividly. You know, it's really bad when your only highlight reel is that you almost touched Jake Scott on a punt return in practice. That's my highlight reel. Now, what's the point? You know which story is made up because men don't make up stories that cast themselves in a bad light. They don't make up embarrassing stories about themselves. They make up heroic stories about themselves. They always embellish in a positive direction. Every man does that. But when you read the Gospels, the apostles were either clueless or cowardly, perpetually. The chief apostle, who's mentioned 50 times in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, denied the Lord Jesus with an oath because he was intimidated by a young girl. Denied him three times. Now, can you imagine carrying that stigma around with you for the rest of your life in the Greco-Roman world as a very prominent part of the gospel? Why would that have been made up? It's so humiliating. It's humiliating to think that it was the women who had to convince them that the tomb was empty. They didn't believe it. Do you know that in the first century, the testimony of a woman was not admissible in a Roman court of law? Because their testimony was deemed unreliable. So there are two things there. One would be the humiliation of the men admitting that the women got it right. The other was, well, if we're trying to make the, the, the thesis believable, we're not going to help our case very much if we say that it was actually the women who discovered the empty tomb. People are going to think, oh, yeah, well, sure, women will say anything. They're hysterical. They'll believe anything. Why was it reported then? Because that's what happened. Because the accounts were not contrived. Now, that's, those are the kinds of things that we talked about. One more thing, I said one more little thing, and then we're going to come to the new topic, is I talk about the man that I worship and adore. It's just possible, if you're inclined toward unbelief, that you think, well, yes, but all the accounts of him were romanticized. How could they be romanticized? Who could have invented what he said and what he did? We're making the transition now. How could fishermen and tax collectors have created a fictional persona who is simply unforgettable? Do you know that the greatest writers in the world have tried to give us fictional accounts of Jesus of Nazareth? Did you know that? One of the two greatest Russian writers, who may be one of the two greatest writers in any country, was named Dostoevsky. He died in 1881. His great classic, he had two, but the greater one was called The Brothers Karamazov. You know that in The Brothers Karamazov, there's a chapter where Dostoevsky has Jesus come back? It's actually a flashback scene to 16th century Spain, Spain of the Inquisition. And you know that the, the great thing about Dostoevsky is his powerful characterizations. His characters are more real than the people we meet every day. And the brothers in that novel, their father, their father's girlfriend, the priest, are all so vividly and vigorously 
real. In the chapter where Christ appears, do you know what Jesus says in that chapter? Nothing. Zero. You know why? Because Dostoevsky couldn't do it. The same can be said of another Russian novel by a much less well-known author to Americans whom all Russians know, an author of the Soviet period called Mikhail Bulkovsky, who wrote a book called Master and Margarita. My lawyer, Bill, Bill Bateman, is one of the few Americans I know who read that book. Somebody else just said I read it. So there are at least two of you. Good for you. Bulgakov also has Jesus appear in his novel. D.H. Lawrence has Jesus as the subject of his novel, The Man Who Died. Jesus does not say one interesting thing in that whole book. I read every word of it. He doesn't do one interesting thing in the whole book. Now, here's the thing. If Dostoevsky couldn't do it, if Bulgakov couldn't do it, if D.H. Lawrence couldn't do it, some of the greatest creators of narrative fiction of their generations, how did a tax collector named Matthew do it? How did a doctor named Luke do it? How did a fisherman named John do it? C.S. Lewis, who was the greatest literary critic of his generation, put it this way. No one can invent one new thing for Jesus to say or do and make it believable. It's like trying to create a new primary color. It can't be done. I want to look at the, a text. It's not going to be an exposition. It's going to be more a point of departure, but I think we may have it up on the screen. The text is in our least consulted gospel, the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to quote it in the King James because I think the King James is so powerful. Then I'll give you a contemporary paraphrase to make sure the thrust is not lost. It says in Mark 2.1 that he came into Capernaum after some days. And the people took note that he was in the house. So many were gathered together, so much so that there was no room to receive them. Um, so many people were about the door. Um, they came in. You know what? I was reading 2-6 instead of 6-2. Sorry. I knew he was going to speak, but not in the house. He's actually speaking at the synagogue. When the Sabbath day came, this is 6-2, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, okay, this is the phrase. This is what I want to talk about tonight. This is the authorized version. From whence hath this man these things? From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this that was given to him? That even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they were offended at him. Think of that. Now, here's what we want to do. I'm going to read it in a contemporary paraphrase. 
But let's understand what we're trying to do. The main thing I want to do is to encourage believers that it's true. Just because your grandmother believed it, that doesn't mean it wasn't true. Because so many believers have doubts. One of the godliest women I know in the season of the loss of her child said to me, sometimes I think that maybe it's not true. Maybe I'll never see him again. One of the strongest Christians I've ever met. And we may be plagued by those doubts. So the main thing I want to do is to encourage believers in their faith. Now, I would love, I would love for the Lord to bring somebody over the threshold from unbelief to saving faith. I'd like to be optimistic, but the text sobers me. Because in the text itself, Mark 6, 3, in the text itself, the people who saw him with their own eyes, they saw the miracles. They saw the impossible things they did. They heard the things that he said, which no ordinary mortal could have ever produced. They were offended. I can't hope to do better than Jesus, but I can pray. So the question is, from whence hath these men these things? Let me read you the paraphrase. This is from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Same two verses I just read from the authorized version. Here here it goes. We had no idea he was this good, they said. How did he get so wise all of a sudden, get such ability? But in the next breath, they were cutting him down. He's just a carpenter, Mary's boy. We knew his brothers, James, Justice, Jude, Simon, and his sisters. Who does he think he is? They tripped over what little they knew of him. And they fell sprawling. They never got any further. I'm astonished by the invincible, tinsel strength of unbelief. It astonishes me. By the way, it's another proof of the Bible's authenticity. Because if it was just triumphalism, if they were just cheerleading, they wouldn't report the unbelief. They would never admit that so many people didn't believe it. They'd never admit the doubts of John the Baptist in Matthew, even in Matthew chapter 11. But it is reported. Is it reported to strengthen the case? No, it's reported because it happened. They're reporting what happened. Let me talk a minute about the alternate contradictory narrative before I move into what I believe with all my heart is the truth and why the truth cannot have been made up. The alternative, one of the alternative narratives is the secular worldview. The gospel of new atheism. Let me just say, without trying to be wry or cute, but say, I say this very literally, the problem with atheism is its religious nature. It is so very, very religious. It is based on the most outlandish faith. And it's not only a religion, it is the most primitive of religions. 
and what masquerades as the latest science is in fact, upon examination, the oldest religion. Because the oldest religion is idolatry. And atheism feeds on idolatry. And even a, pre, a species of pre-religion, which I, I don't know what to call except for the word magic. Now let me try to support my thesis. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when you impute to a thing the properties of deity. Or even more basically, when you impute to something which is not human, something that's less than human, the properties of humanity. I was listening to a debate, October 5th, 2018, between Daniel Dennett, one of the four horsemen of the new atheism. He was debating Keith Ward, a scholar who's an Anglican priest, a Cambridge man who was canon of Christ Church, Oxford, for many, many years. And Daniel Dennett just, he said, he must have said this 20 times. You see evolution designed. You see evolution designed. Evolution designed our brain. I'm thinking, good God, man, and I don't say that profanely. I say it perfectly. Good God, man, how can something mindless design anything? That's idolatry when you say, well, Mother Nature provides. When you say, Natural selection. How can something mindless select in a discriminating way and with intentionality? Explain that to me. Here's what happens and here's why I call it magic. Magic is when you deploy a word to compensate for something you don't understand. And you attribute causation to the word. A word like abracadabra or words like open sesame. Now, right now, you and I are flying on a disc that weighs a trillion times a trillion metric tons. The speed of the orbit, which causes years, is 167,000 miles an hour. That's not the only movement, though. The speed of the rotation is a thousand miles an hour. Now, why does the orbit reach an extremity and curve and come back in the same direction? Why is there a tilt, perpetually 23.5 degrees, which makes the seasons? Why is there a perpetual rotation that makes the days? Oh, that's easy. It's gravity. It's gravity. That's the secular explanation. There's only one problem with that. Gravity is not an explanatory term. Gravity is a descriptive term. And when you try to make a descriptive term into an explanatory term, you've entered the realm of magic. You and I spin an orbit on a trillion times a trillion metric ton globe at a distance of 93 million miles from our nearest star. It takes the clear light eight minutes to reach our planet from that star. The clear light touches the brown earth, which produces the green plants which keep us alive. How does that happen? Well, that's easy. That's photosynthesis. The problem is photosynthesis is not an explanatory term. Photosynthesis is a descriptive term. 
And when you try to make a descriptive term into an explanatory term, you have descended into the realm of magic. Do you know that you get... I mean, are any of you rich enough to send your cleaning out? Don't raise your hand. I'll just get jealous. <laughs> Do you know that we get our water sent out dirty and it, get, it comes back to our doorstep clean? Have you ever thought about that? That the water goes up dirty and then it comes back clean? You say, oh, well, that's evaporation. Oh, well, that, that's condescension. No, friend, that's magic. When you try to use those words as explanations, they are not explanations. They are descriptions of what God does. And when you try to use descriptive terms to evict God from the universe that he made, that's idolatry. Where you make the word nature or evolution or natural selection, sir, or gravity, or photosynthesis, or condensation, or evaporation, serve for the providence of God who designed this place and designed these bodies, who designed the lungs for the oxygen and the oxygen for the lungs and the veins and arteries for the blood and the blood for the veins and the arteries. And don't tell me evolution designed that. Look, I'm not arguing against evolution. I don't know enough science to argue against evolution. I'm arguing against the possibility of evolution without a supernatural overseer of the process. My contention is the gospel has to be true because it could not have been imagined. You cannot imagine that which you cannot make up. Do you have any idea what the messianic expectations were in the first century? They were expecting someone to the Davidic throne, sit on the Davidic throne, and they expected that throne sitter, to wage Davidic wars. They expected the Messiah to kick the filthy boot of Rome off the Israelite neck. Someone who was supreme in the martial virtues. Someone who was valorous. Someone who would lead them into battle. Someone who would show the whole world how rich Israel was spiritually. So when he unfolds his charter, what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Someone who would cause celebration in the streets of Jerusalem once the Romans were evicted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Someone bold and intrepid, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Someone who would reverse the roles of the Romans and the Jews. Blessed are the, they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall, be filled, they shall be filled. Someone who would wage war against the enemies of Israel. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Somebody who would stop the persecution of the children of Abraham. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Someone would stop who would stop the slander against their nation. Blessed are you when men should revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. First of all, the Jews hated the Gentiles. Do you know that when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth, in Luke 4, I'm going to preach on this, I think, during the missions conference. 
he reminded them that the prophet Elijah did not deliver a Jewish widow from starvation. He, developed, he, he delivered a Phoenician widow in the generation where the greatest problem in Israel was a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. So who does God heal? He heals a Phoenician woman. He reminded them that Elisha did not heal one of the lepers of Israel. He healed rather a general of an army which threatened Israel's security on its northern flank, Naaman the Syrian. All he did was point this out in the Scripture. You know what they did? They tried to kill him. They took him out to the brow of the hill and they tried to throw him off. There's no record that he ever went back to Nazareth to preach. That's how popular the message was. So he unfolds his charter, which I've been reading from, called the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells them exactly the opposite of what they wanted to hear, of what they expected to hear. Matthew 5 through 7, after he unfolds the charter, one of the first things he says in Matthew 8, after about one of the Roman occupiers, about a Roman centurion, I have found more faith in this man than I have found in any Jew in Israel. How welcome do you think that message was? You know who the Jews hated more than the Gentiles and even more than the Roman occupiers? <clears throat> they hated the Samaritans. You know, there's an intra-evangelical controversy unfolding right now between those who say, listen, men, we've neglected social justice for centuries. We've, we've lost credibility, and we've got to put social justice on the point. And others saying, no, if you do that, you're going to eclipse the gospel. What good does it do if you feed a man if he goes to hell? You've got to keep the gospel in the center. Just let me, without entering the controversy, which is not my purpose here, just let me say one thing. It's not either or, it's both and, okay? But I will say this, from the very beginning, in the ancient world, social justice was only found in one place. It was found in this book. I was witnessing on the streets of uh, Budapest, and I engaged a Muslim. The only reason I knew he was a Muslim was because of what he had on his head. He was beautifully and unusually dressed. I discovered after talking to him a bit that he was a mixed-race South African. He was one of the most attractive and winsome and brilliant people I have ever talked to. And he was a tremendous debater. I would throw a punch that I thought, this is going to knock him on, on his back, and he would deflect, deflect it and counterpunch. I mean, the guy was brilliant. And finally, I said this. I said, I have a question for you. He said, what? I said, tell me why 90% of devout Muslims who live in a country where Sharia law is practiced, if they could bring their families with them, they would move in a heartbeat to a country with a Judeo-Christian tradition. Explain that to me. Do you know he had so much integrity and he was so noble that he wasn't trying to win the debate. He was trying to get at the truth. He hung his head and looked back up at me and said, Sir, I don't have a good answer for that question. 
If you consult a, a, a secular scholar a man, or a man like Gibbon, they'll insist that the, the strength of the West is found in the heritage of Greece and Rome. It's not. Greece and Rome gave us slavery. Greece and Rome gave us infanticide. Greece and Rome gave us temple prostitution. It was Christianity which gave us the care of the insane. Hospitals, laws against child labor, rescue work, humanitarian work, works of mercy, the rights of the individual, representative government, the defense of the weak against the strong. That's what made the West. And you know what? The West is crumbling because those values and the source, uh, those values are being deserted and the source of those values are being denied. It's just leading up to this point. Do you realize that the greatest statement against racism in the ancient world is the story of the Good Samaritan? The reason the Jews hated the Samaritans is because they were racially compromised. I could take 10 minutes and tell you the history. I don't have 10 minutes to tell you. The greatest statement against racism in the history of the ancient world. And by the way, in every work of scholarship you consult, it'll say the parable of the Good Samaritan. Nowhere in the text, Luke 10, nowhere in the text does it say it was a parable. It wasn't a parable. It really happened. About 20 years ago, I took 16 Thursdays, standing here, some of you were here, in a Thursday business luncheon to study the story of the woman of Samaria. I made the boast then, I make it today, that if all we had was the story of the, goods of the woman at the well, and if we knew sufficiently the historical background of the dealings between the Jews and Samaritans in the first century, we could prove without reasonable doubt that there's one God who made heaven and earth and that Jesus of Nazareth is his son. The Jews didn't go through Samaria, but that Jew named Jesus did. They'd go way out of the way to cross over to the east bank of the Jordan and then travel north till they were past Samaria to get to Galilee. They'd reverse the trip from Galilee to Judea. They would avoid Samaria. He went straight through. The last time I spoke of the fish fry, I talked about how he said to a man of high and noble birth, Nicodemus, who had every advantage of birth, sir, the only thing you need is another birth. You need to be somebody else. So what did he say to the outcast, the Samaritan woman? He said, can I have a drink out of your cup? Can I put my mouth where you put your mouth? The Jews were the outcasts of the world. The Emperor Claudius would soon evict them from Rome. The Samaritans were the outcasts of the Jews. The Samaritan women were looked down on by Samaritan men. That woman was looked down on by Samaritan women. How do we know? She came to the well at noon. Nobody went to the well at noon. It was too hot. She came to the well alone. Women didn't come to the well alone. He risked everything by talking to her in a lonely place. I've been gone from Memphis for 15 years. I'm not often recognized. If you came up upon me sitting on a bench in Audubon Park and 
you saw a woman in my lap, and you thought, it must be Jane, and you get there, and it's not Jane, and it's not one of my daughters, and it's not my sister, your conclusion rightly would be, there can't be a good explanation for this. Not his wife, not his daughter, not his sister. There cannot be a good explanation for this. I promise you, his disciples, if you knew the ethos of that culture in that century, his disciples were more shocked to see him talking to that Samaritan woman alone than you would have been if you found me sitting on a bench at Audubon with a woman in my lap. I promise you. Why did he do it? Because he came to save souls, Samaritan souls too. And to do that, he had to take risks. Risks not only for his physical life, but risks with his reputation. He took the risk that he might save the soul. And by the way, when she said, you know, we're, we're expecting the Messiah, and he looked at her and said, hey, go, hey, me. I am he. That is the fullest self-disclosure of the messianic identity in the Bible. The only thing that comes close is Matthew 16. And I would say that John 4 is a fuller self-disclosure of the messianic identity in the Bible. To whom? A Samaritan harlot. You think that was made up? You think an ordinary Jewish man of the first century could have done that? Unthinkable. Unthinkable. But let me keep going. There was a group of people that the Jews hated more than the Samaritans. And that was the tax collectors. So what does Jesus do? You know, nobody would go to a tax collector's house. Only other tax collectors. The tax collectors were like vultures. You know, no animal will eat a vulture. And a vulture will eat any animal. And the only people who came to their parties were other tax collectors. Except, of course, Jesus. So one of the first things he does is he calls a tax collector to be one of his closest associates. And one of the last things he does, Luke 19, he's on the way through Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. He's going there to hang on a tree. Everybody can see him in full public view. He looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, you can come down. Unspoken parenthesis. Because I'm going up. Your sins can be forgiven because I'm going to go hang on a tree for you. And everybody hears him say, let's go to your house. One of the last things he did, one of the first things he did, he calls a tax collector for a disciple. One of the last things he does, he fellowships in the home of the most hated man in the neighborhood. And by the way, if they were making it up, can't you just imagine they're conspiring, they're going to tell fables, they're going to embellish, they're going to make up stuff that never happened, they're going to try to deceive the world into believing that Christianity's true and he's really the son of God. So there they are together, and somebody says, Hey, Matthew, you've got a lot of credibility with the Jews. Why don't you write the gospel to the Jews since you're a tax collector? You see how daft that thesis is? You see how impossible that is? It could have never happened. It could have never been conceived. It could have never been thought of. Impossible. But here's the thing that's really impossible. Let's adhere to the title of the message. And we're almost done. Here's the thing that's really impossible. The gospel itself 
could have never been imagined, and I'm about to prove it. I tell you at the beginning that one reason we don't feel the jolt is because we know the stories. Nothing surprises us because we've already heard it. You know the term counterintuitive. That means the, the thing we didn't expect. We expected the opposite, but somebody did something or said something counterintuitive, counter to what we would intuit, counter to our intuition. Do you realize that almost everything Jesus said and did was counterintuitive? It, it doesn't jolt us because we know everything he said and did. So in John 9, when he heals a man born blind, his methodology, methodology doesn't shock us because we heard it when we were children. What does he do to heal the man born blind? Somebody tell me. Say it louder. He spits in the dirt. What does he do with the mud? He rubs it in the man's eye. Isn't that what you would do if you were trying to help somebody see? Nature is one of those idolatrous magic word God substitutes. Oh, nature did that. Nature, which has no mind, no reasoning, no intentionality. Oh, nature did. Nature provided all, all this stuff. Not God, nature. Let me tell you something. Nature is what God wants at the moment. He can alter it. He can suspend it. He can abolish it. Or he can reorder it anytime he wants to. Jesus was counterintuitive because his father was counterintuitive. His father, who said to a general, Son, you can't win this battle. You got too many soldiers. That's what he told Gideon. That's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? No military counsel ever, counselor ever gave that counsel. What did Elijah do to make the altar combustible in the trial by fire on Mount Carmel? with the prophets of Baal. What did he do to prepare the altar to be burned up? He flooded it with water. Isn't that what you do when you make the first fire of the season? Don't you just pour water over the wood before you try to light it? You see how counterintuitive that is? I just gave one of the most dramatic examples, which anybody can see. But almost everything he said was counterintuitive. Everything he said in the Sermon on the Mount was counterintuitive. Almost everything he ever did was counterintuitive. But it doesn't shock us because we've heard the stories all our lives. But dear friends, and if you're not a believer, thank you so much for coming out. You know what? If I wasn't a believer, I wouldn't listen to somebody like me. It's a high price to pay for catfish, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm almost done. And I made a tremendous boast. I said I could prove something. I'm about to prove it. And if you repudiate it, I want you to ask yourself why you're repudiating it and who you're listening to and how you can repudiate it. Imagine with me for a moment one of those great empires of the ancient world. You know, Israel were occupied by five successive empires. First, the Assyrians in 722, succeeded by the Babylonians, succeeded by the Persians, Succeeded by the Greeks, succeeded by the heirs of Alexander, which most, most people don't count that one, but it was a kind of mini-empire too, the Seleucids, the Syrians. 
succeeded, of course, by the Romans. Let's imagine, this is the last thing we're going to do, let's imagine a council of war between one of those emperors and his commanders. Let's say Nebuchadnezzar, the most famous Babylonian emperor. And let's say Nebuchadnezzar called his commanders together in a council of war. They convene, and he says, gentlemen, we've had a, a really serious rebellion in a distant province of our empire. And those, uh, those rebels have, they murdered our ambassador. And they massacred our garrison. And they put our tribute takers and our, and our representatives to flight. And they're in full rebellion. What, what are we going to do to bring these miserable wretches back into submission? And one of the commanders in the room raises his hand. And Nebuchadnezzar says, speak, general. Tell us your idea. He stands up and he says, I know, sire, let's send your only son and heir unarmed into the, into the enemy camp where he will be mocked, spit upon, and tortured to death over a period of hours. Then those rebels will know how much we love them. Now, that never happened, did it? If it had happened, the general who made the recommendation could have measured his life not in minutes, but in seconds. But you know that never happened, don't you? Why do you know it never happened? Why do you know it never could have happened? You know it could have never happened because it's not a human thought. It's not a thought that could ever originate in a human brain. That's impossible. But it did happen once, didn't it? And the plan did not originate in a human brain. The plan originated in a divine mind full of an unimaginable love. I became a father 40 years ago, March 1st. I'm so unbelievably selfish that I wondered if I could ever love a child like a child is supposed to be loved. And once her head crowned, exiting the womb, I said, oh, dear God, don't let me be an idolater. Don't let me love her too much. And then God gave us a son whose soul he took to heaven before he exited the womb. And then God gave us the son who introduced me. And then God gave us a daughter who... God willing, we'll graduate from the same seminary my son and I graduated from in, in two months. 
What a glorious thing to be a father. What a glorious thing to be a grandfather. Three weeks ago today, a grandfather of twins and the other grandfather sitting at my table as the father introduced me. I chose a little phrase, and the little phrase was, uh, it's already gone. Where did this man get all this? From whence hath these man, this man these things? Well, he got them from his father, who loved him more than any earthly father ever loved an earthly son or daughter. And the reason we, mothers and fathers, love our sons and daughters is because he loaned some of his great father love to us so that he could love them through us. So that we don't just read in the Bible that God loves us like a father, but if we have the privilege of becoming a dad, we not only read it in the Bible, we feel it in our gut. And there's a little phrase in Romans 8:32 which staggers me, like this question staggers me. From whence hath this man these things? That little phrase is this. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not all also freely give us all things? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. No human made it up. Because no human could have imagined it. There's only one God who has only one son who's given us only one gospel. And its heavenly origin is undeniable. Amen.